In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please be seated. This is the third Sunday of Easter. We are moving forward in this week of weeks, this uh, season of celebrating the resurrection of our Lord. It's a time of feasting and of contemplation upon the resurrection, what it is that uh, happened to Jesus and what is promised uh, to us in the resurrection as we participate with him in his life. We are uh, learning something new uh, throughout this season, throughout this week of weeks about the resurrection, about what it is and what resurrected bodies are. We've uh, seen that the resurrected body cannot be held by stone. It cannot be held by cloth. We've seen that the resurrected body cannot be uh, kept away through locked doors or, or closed and shuttered windows. And now we've seen for the second time in the Gospels that the resurrected body is not recognized uh, by the way that we typically recognize bodies. You'll remember that Mary Magdalene thinks that he's the gardener and uh, doesn't recognize him until he says her name. And now we see Cleopas, and uh, as tradition tells us, St. Luke himself, walking on the road to Emmaus and spending some time with him in conversation and not recognizing him at all. So here's another unique aspect of these resurrected bodies, that uh, they are not known in the way that we typically know a body or recognize a body, that there is a knowledge that's about uh, relationship and about the spiritual uh, breaking of bread, this spiritual fellowship about naming. And so there's so much more about recognition here. And indeed, if we are to recognize the risen Savior in our own lives, if we're to commune with him, it's going to take something a little bit more than the kind of familiarity we look for in our common associations. And so here they are on the road, and the Lord allows them not to recognize him. And he does this initially, it seems, not only to tell us something about this resurrected body of his and what it is that we're promised to participate in that, uh, but in order to show that they're fools, which is very nice, isn't it? Uh, we like that, don't we, to be shown how foolish we are and to show our lack of understanding. Uh, it's a, a real joy uh, to have that experience, uh, to be shown, oh, I thought that uh, I knew what was going on uh, for these past three years, right? Cleopas and Luke uh, were with Jesus at least that long. Uh, they're among the 70. They're named among the 70. And so they're in that group that uh, St. Peter says, let those who have been with us since the time of his baptism uh, step forward, right, to uh, stand in place of Judas. You remember that? There's a whole group of people that had been with Jesus. It's not just the 12. It's not just the 70. Of course, the women are there as well. Um, there's several hundred, perhaps, uh, that are there. And the 70 are a really important part of the ministry. They're sent out. And so, um, so here they are, they've known Jesus, they've walked with him, uh, and they've done ministry for him for three years, right? And they say that they were hoping during all this time that he was going to be the one to lead Israel uh, into redemption, right? To lead them back to being a self-sustaining nation apart from the power of Rome. That was their hope. It was a political hope. They were with him for three years. They had no clue what it was that he was doing. And we have to have our ignorance exposed and to finally realize, oh, I really, I've got no clue. So that we can humble ourselves and submit to God and be looking for his word in his ways. Otherwise, we might think, I've got a pretty good idea. 
I've got a pretty good understanding. I think I'll just go ahead and do what I think I'm supposed to do. No, we have to be proven to be the fools that the Lord uh, wants us to acknowledge so that we can turn to Him with a strong desire for His will. And so He then shows them in the Scriptures from Moses. And uh, we'll always have uh, people bringing up in Bible study in other places, oh, um, you know, how could Moses have known? Or how could Isaiah have known? Uh, Jesus shows clearly that Moses spoke of him, that uh, Moses told of Christ. And he says it in a way that makes those that, uh, that are his listeners seem a little foolish again, right? Uh, do you, a teacher of Israel, not understand the things that were promised, right? Is what he says to Nicodemus. And so he shows how from Moses he had been promised, and not only that he talks about the the necessary aspects of what it is to be the messiah he talks about two essential things for the work of the messiah in the scriptures he reveals that the messiah must suffer and that the messiah must be glorified these are the two points that he hits from moses all the way through the prophets that the messiah must suffer and that the messiah must be risen in glory And so that's what he teaches to Cleopas and St. Luke. And of course, then he is revealed to them in the breaking of bread. It's in Holy Communion that our eyes are opened. And this is why it's so important that we have a a disciplined and regular practice of receiving Holy Communion. uh, Because uh, I can just speak for myself here. Sunday morning, sitting in that chair at 8 o'clock, I'm feeling empty. You know, and I think, how can I preach? How can I lead the prayers? How can I do the things that I need to do? It seems like it's been so long since I've been with the Lord. And so uh, we have to be sustained in this regular breaking of bread. Um, They had walked with Jesus. They had ministered with him. And yet they needed that uh, to awaken their eyes. Isaiah 2 shows us very clearly. He shows us the suffering of the Messiah. He doesn't say when we suffer. He talks about the suffering that we have to share with the Messiah if we're going to participate. Because again, not only is this necessary for the Messiah, but it's necessary for us, right? Take up your cross and follow me, right? He who does not lay down his life, right? He says it over and over again. He who seeks to save his life, he says it as many ways as he can. We have to participate in that suffering. And Isaiah doesn't say, um, you know, if you uh, pass through the waters. Uh, He says, when, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. They shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, he doesn't say if you'll walk through fire and water. He says, when we're guaranteed, if we're walking with the Lord to go through uh, trials, that's part of the experience. That's part of who the Messiah is. It's necessary for him to suffer and it's necessary for us to suffer as well but he promises that we will not do it alone he promises that he will be with us always and he names us the lord here in isaiah calls us by a name he says i have called you by name you are mine that's our name our name is you are mine that's how god knows us he knows us as you are mine says you belong to me that's the name of god's people you are mine and so he says i'll always be with you through these trials why because i love you and he says you are my witnesses believe and understand you are my witnesses and i am god so as we are his and as we go through these difficult times 
He says, you're going to witness to me. What is that? It's to give a testimony. It's to say, this is what God's done for me. This is what I've experienced with the Lord. This is what the Lord's doing in my life. Anybody who talks to us should be hearing about the Lord. Because if we're going to tell them anything about our life, we need to be telling them about what the Lord is doing in our life, right? People say, how are your family? How's your job? How are things going? We need to be saying, this is what the Lord's doing in my life. This is what he's doing. This is where he's moving me. This is how he's blessing me. This is how he's providing for me. These are the difficult things I've gone through, and yet he's been with me. This is the story that we're supposed to be telling as we share in that suffering of the Messiah. And then St. Peter clarifies what it means that we share in his glory, that we understand the glory of the risen Lord and, and what it is that's been promised to us in these resurrected bodies and this experience of the resurrection that we're working into now, right? We are being saved. We are coming to participate. And St. Peter says, if we're going to participate in his glory, if we're going to participate in this resurrected life, he says, we've got to do a couple of things. We've got to do a couple of things. He says, number one, you've got to have your minds prepared for action. In other words, you've got to know what it is that's coming. You've got to know, okay, there's going to be difficult times ahead. We can't be surprised. We can't be like the rest of the world that says, oh no, things are going bad. As Christians, we're going to say, yeah, yeah, that's right. And it can get worse, by the way, right? And that we can say that and know it can get worse and yet not lose hope. That's the uniqueness of the Christian, right? We're not with the rest of the world and saying, oh no, we're all going to die, isn't it scary? We're going to say, no, we're all going to die and it's not scary. That's what St. Peter is saying here, right? He says, Isaiah said, um, all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flowers of the grass, the grass withers and the flower falls. You're going to die. You're going to die. Yeah, this is not a scary thing. It's not a surprising thing. You're going to die. And soon, by the way, right? Your deaths are not a far way off. It's soon. That's why he talks about grass. He doesn't say you wither like an oak tree or like a redwood. He says you wither like grass, right? Like those weeds that grew up in my backyard last week, all green, and now they're totally brown, right? That was fast. That was really fast, and that's how we grow up and wither. So we can't be surprised, and we can't lose hope. We can't become like despair. We knew this. And we know that the word of the Lord remains forever. And as long as that word is with us and we're with him, we also remain forever, as long as. So he says, have your minds ready for action, know these things, and then set your hope on grace. In other words, we do have hope, but our hope is not in our government. It's not in medical doctors or professionals. It's not in our military. It's not in our savings accounts. It's not in the pound versus the dollar. Our hope is in the name of the Lord. He's the one that will preserve us in eternity because the rest of these groups don't even know what eternity is. So our hope is in eternity. It's in the glory of God. And then finally he says, be holy in your conduct because I'm holy. In other words, if you want the Word to dwell with you, you have to dwell in holiness, in the ways of God. So we have to have minds that are set upon virtue. We have to have minds that are set upon the right ways of being with God. We have to, if we're going to be with the Word, if we're going to participate in the resurrection, we have to have a resurrected thought. We have to have a resurrected life. We have to have a holiness. Otherwise, why would we even want to go to heaven? This is always my question for people to say, oh, what about those poor people that don't go to heaven? Well, do they want to? 
A lot of people receive the gospel, they hear the gospel message and they reject it. They say, no thanks, doesn't sound like any fun to me. God doesn't sound like somebody I want to know. They propose a God that they would like to know who makes their life perfect and who's like a puppet master putting everything perfectly into place. That's not the God that we know. That's not who they'd be spending eternity with. They're telling us plainly, I don't want to believe in a God that you believe in. I don't want to believe in this God. Well, then why would you want to spend eternity with him? The same has to be asked of us. Do we want to be holy? Because if we don't want to be holy, we don't want to spend eternity with the Lord. If we want to spend eternity with the Lord, we want to be holy. You can't separate them. It's crazy that Luke and Cleopas go back to Jerusalem. That's crazy. Here's the answer to all those that think that the apostles made up the resurrection or that the early church was thinking that the resurrection was a, a euphemism or some kind of just a, a metaphor for life. You know, people do not go back to Jerusalem for metaphors or for lies. They go back to Jerusalem and they both die a martyr's death because they saw the risen Lord. It's the only way. It's the only part that makes sense. It's the only thing that explains their actions. Otherwise, they would have kept on walking away from Jerusalem. St. Paul never would have gone back to Jerusalem. His friends in the church said, I don't think you ought to go back. And he said, I have to go back. And he was willing to die. Because he knew this life is a minute. This grass will wither and fade, but the word remains. The word remains. My Lord remains. My God has risen, and he has promised that I will rise with him in eternity and everlasting life.